You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide, in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang. Caroline Hyde in New York. This is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up in the next hour, we explore the latest sanctions that the Biden administration is levying at Russia as the country inches forward to a possible invasion of Ukraine. Plus, with tensions heightened, how Russia could also use cyber attacks to retaliate for those sanctions. Plus, the revolving down in Washington between those in crypto and those tasked with policing it. There's a surprising number of people who have been making the move from crypto to government and vice versa. And for the first time in nearly two decades, there'll be no new Call of Duty next year. What that means for the gaming industry, plus why the gaming world is going crazy over Elden Ring, and why fans of Game of Thrones might be intrigued as well. We'll get to all of that good stuff in a moment, but first, well, it was another pretty bleak day on the markets, particularly if you're long technology. Bloomberg's Kriti Gupta has the update for us. Yeah, a risk-off day in the markets, red on the screen, which is interesting given that we had a pretty big sell-off yesterday. That usually means you have a pretty strong rebound, but even though we opened in the green, we weren't able to hold those gates. You can see that right behind me, the S&P 500 closing down 1.8%, but like you said, Caroline, a lot of that pain showing up in the NASDAQ down almost to, almost just shy of 3%, 2.6%. What's important to keep in mind here is that big tech, although it leads to those records, it also leads to declines, and that's really what you're seeing. One of the only sectors in the green today was, of course, energy, which brings me once again to those geopolitical tensions. You can see that's what weighed the stock market down, but actually fed into commodities. And you can see that Brent crude getting closer and closer to that $100 a barrel. That is going to be significant when we talk about inflation feeding back into what actually weighs on those tech stocks. Let's talk about technicals, though, because that absolutely plays 
plays into this dynamic. You actually saw the S&P 500 close into correction territory yesterday. So once again, Caroline, the assumption here is that you're going to see a bounce back pretty normally when the S&P 500 drops 10% from its all-time peak. You do see a pretty strong bounce back, yet we are not there. We are now down 11% from its peak earlier this year. There was some green on the screen, though, with little pockets. And when it co- once again, it comes to geopolitical tensions. Traditionally, in those kind of safe haven moves, you tend to go to big tech. But today, that green on the screen happened to mean cybersecurity stocks. A little bit of a last-minute sell-off when it comes to CrowdStrike, VMware, and Fortinet. But Palo Alto, once again, actually gaining some pretty blockbuster earnings there. But at the end of the day, when you're talking about geopolitical risk, when you're talking about invasion risk, and, of course, cyber attacks on Ukraine, what better play than those defense stocks? And right now, that's the purpose cybersecurity is playing right now in the stock market. Pretty such a great roundup, really tying together all of the headwinds and tailwinds in the market in the right moment. And I want to talk more about those headwinds and precisely the sanctions that we were just talking about. The Biden administration, once again, upping the ante in that respect. We want to bring in, of course, Bloomberg's Washington correspondent. He's not in Washington, he's in New York, <laughs> Anne-Marie Horden. The reason you're here is because you had a really great exclusive interview. But first and foremost, bring us up to speed with well, where we are in terms of sanctions. They seem to be ramping up slowly. Yeah, the Biden administration today is going to be sanctioning Nord Stream 2 and and the, the individuals that are part of Nord Stream 2. And this, I have to say, is a pretty aggressive step. This is something that the U.S. has really held back from doing. And this isn't just now that the Germans say we're going to wait for that certification. Because remind us, Nord Stream 2, the gas pipeline between Germany and Russia. Right. And this is something Putin wants, $11 billion. He can start to not go through Ukraine as much for those gas, but instead use another pipeline directly into Europe, the heart of Europe. And now, even though the Germany says they're going to wait to potentially certify it, with the U.S. putting sanctions on it, that means that certification may never come through. But the Ukrainian foreign minister, who I sat down with, said this is very welcome. They've been against Nord Stream 2 for years, but he said more sanctions are needed. Take a listen. It sends a strong message to Putin, but it still doesn't stop him. So it means we need more sanctions. We need the second wave and then probably the third wave until it gets clear to him that uh, he shouldn't make any step further. Dmitry Kuleva there, and he's heading back to Kiev now. We should note in Kiev now, Caroline, in Ukraine as a whole, it's a state of emergency. The separatists have asked Putin to send in troops, so it does feel like things are really starting to escalate. Starting to escalate, and also not only in physical form, but also in cyber form as well. There was another cyber attack on Ukraine's key sort of infrastructure. Too. Yeah, and including the foreign minister, his website. So the oh, far- no. all these ministries were attacked. This was the second cyber attack that's happened in about a week. Mm-hmm. But this has happened to Ukraine a number of times. One of the biggest ones was in 2015 when literally everyone's power went out in the country or maybe 300,000 consumers, right? It felt like a lot at the time. But they've attacked cyber attacks have been at banks, the metro, a number of issues. And I asked him about this, and he said they have been working for to really fortify it and make it a little bit more robust. But I was curious about if you're going tit-for-toe or tit-for-tat with Putin toe-to-toe when it comes to sanctions trying to deter him, any of his conversations have Western leaders said they would also issue cyber attacks on Russia? And he said, no, that hasn't come up yet. Huh. 
We'll see how cyber warfare starts to be factored in a little bit more. Amory Horden, such a great interview. Go on to Bloomberg.com and seek it out because it was a great conversation. But we want to, of course, discuss a little bit more about what's been happening with several of the Ukrainian government and banking websites not functioning due to distributed denial of service attacks, DDoS. This comes after Ukraine said just last week that, of course, it suffered its worst cyber attack, also targeting banking and government websites, as Amory was just telling us. Let's dig into it. Marcus Fowler, he's a senior vice president for strategic engagements and threats for Darktrace. He also spent 15 years working at the CIA as its global cyber operations. You're a man who's in the know on these things. Just talk to us about the level of threat that distributed denial of service attacks have on Ukraine. How impactful are they? Sure, Caroline, and great to be here. So, you know, these distributed denial of service attacks really go at basically flooding a network or a website with traffic so that they're unusable, they're overloaded, and they really don't function. And they can be disruptive kind of at that, you know, if I'm a consumer trying to get to a specific website, and they can really frustrate kind of the the Internet connectivity of a specific website. But in terms of, like, broader more disruptive attacks, I think those are are still to come. Okay, still to come, and still to come leveled at Ukraine, or do you start to think that here in the United States, with sanctions being upped by the Biden administration, we could too see infrastructures we've seen before, or perhaps websites and the like start to be attacked as well? Great question. I think the easy answer is both. You're going to see them ratchet up. You're going to see the Russians ratchet up cyber attacks within Ukraine, potentially moving into ransomware, data theft, data encryption to further cripple uh, organizations and businesses, as well as potentially move into critical infrastructure as a, as a higher escalation point. Uh, as for the U.S. and the West, as harsher and harsher sanctions and more economic damage is done on Russia, you will see them, I think, want to and attempt to respond in kind in terms of economic disruption, thinking financial institutions, banks, uh, maybe potentially tightening and or more damage to the supply chain uh, through either their own actions or proxies such as cyber criminal groups or in ransomware actors. Yeah, to that point, when you are looking at the data, when you're trying to see, when you're understanding where these attacks are coming from, how do you discern whether it's indeed from the government, whether indeed it's more uh, using other actors at their will, how you can ensure that you're joining the dots in a sophisticated manner? No, your attribution within cyberspace and who the actor actually was is incredibly difficult. Though I, I was very pleased to see with the earlier version of the denial of service attacks, the U.S. government come out fairly quickly to identify the Russians as the actor, as the attackers in that space. And I think assessed attribution is really important that it is done as quickly as possible and that Russians, where there is evidence, can be held accountable. But I think they will absolutely be leaning on proxy organizations, potentially new ransomware groups we haven't heard of before. You're going to see more activity within that space as the Russians either provide more state-directed you know, actions or are increasingly not only turn a blind eye, but kind of turn the shackles, you know, release the, the shackles a bit in terms of those ransomware groups operating out of their backyard, as it were. Marcus, I mean, obviously, this is I'm asking you to talk your book a little bit, but have we seen an uptick in demand for cyber protection? Are we seeing the defenses being fortified? Are we ready for the fight, to be perfectly frank? 
So I would say one of the silver linings of the increase in ransomware over the last two years is absolutely seeing the private industry, especially prioritize cybersecurity more directly, right? And really start to put more resources, personnel, you know, advanced emerging technologies into that space. And I think the, the U.S. government has as well, right? And as well as, as many Western allies recognizing the increased threat. Have they done enough, you know, as quickly? I think you, we are in a bit of a race condition against what will be a, a spike in, in cyber attacks and getting the right pieces in place to properly defend, right? It's kind of what that, that old adage of you, you go to war with the army you have, not the army you'd wish you'd built and resourced and prioritized appropriately. Always the way. Marcus Fowler, really interesting. We thank you so much. SVP of Dark Trace. take a moment to think about, well, the future of marketing from Peloton to Facebook or, as we now know it, Meta. The world is seeing its shares of brands facing kind of a post-pandemic marketing challenge. For more we want to bring in on the back of its earnings and also its forward-looking thinking on all of this, the marketing firm Zeta Global, the CEO and co-founder and chairman David Steinberg's with us. Also, of course, as I say, pushing to a fourth quarter sales number that beat estimates 135 million. Talk to us first and foremost about your numbers first. David, and and the growth that you're seeing, are we seeing continued demand and knowledge need in the marketing space? Yeah, so first of all, thank you for having me, Caroline. I appreciate it. It's great to be here. Uh, So at Zeta, what we're really seeing is what I think a lot of organizations are seeing. There's a tremendous amount of disruption in the ecosystem as most marketers are moving from analog marketing to digital marketing. And as a lot of the very large tech players are sort of trying to consolidate control. Apple got rid of their tracking mechanism called the IDFA. Google is eliminating their cross-app tracking. They're eliminating the third-party cookie. Platforms like Zeta Global, which do not use any of those to resolve to an identity, have been able to grow fairly dramatically. I mean, I think that we we grew the business when normalized for the presidential election by 32% in the fourth quarter, and we grew earnings for the year by over 60%. I think a lot of that is coming from this big disruption in the marketplace where organizations are trying to figure out how to navigate those changes and Zeta Global is a bespoke platform to help them do so. And obviously feeling that you've got enough confidence in your growth strategy that from a full year revenue of about 458 million, you're looking to get that into an in excess of a billion dollars in annual revenue over the next, well, up to 2025. Talk to us about the kind of companies that are coming to you at the moment. So it's a a great question. Obviously, not only did we roll out our 2025 plan to get to over a billion a year in revenue and 20% plus operating margins, we fairly dramatically increased our guidance for 2022 as well. Uh, You know, we're seeing very large enterprises. In fact, 34% of the Fortune 100 today use the Zeta marketing platform who are trying to get to consumers in a way that is very cost efficient. And our platform is not just digital. It is built to be efficient in the way the marketing operates. And we've been able to really scale very, very quickly with our clients. And so... 
How? How do I, as a client wanting to get in front of the right user, the right demographic, the right timing, how do I do that in a cost-efficient way at the moment? Because I feel that there's an awful lot of wall of monies being spent on the likes of Instagram, on the likes of TikTok, but is it really being that efficient to your perspective? Yeah, so a lot of it isn't, right? So the old joke is, I, you know, marketers would say, I know that 50% of my marketing is a waste of money. I just do not know which half. The beauty of the Zeta marketing platform combined with our data cloud, which has over 230 million opted in U.S. individuals alone, is we can weed out the individuals that do not have a propensity to want to buy our clients' products, and we know exactly when they're in market. So we're able to hit them at the precise time with the precise message, and we're able to pull out of that marketing funnel the 50% of customers who would not be credit approved and or have a propensity to want to buy that product. So Mm. just by removing them, you're able to massively increase the efficiency. And then by using our data cloud, where you're interacting with these 225 million opted in U.S. individuals, we're able to know when they're in market for particular products and services and specifically target them when they're thinking about the products. So those two things allow us to be very efficient with our enterprise clients' budgets. David, you said opted in. How are we in terms of general trend lines? How many people are going to be wanting to to opt in? How many people see the quid pro quo and say, I'm in, I want it, I want to be targeted that little bit more efficiently? Yeah, I, uh, listen, we, we came about this in a very different approach from most companies. So we have acquired a large number of technology platforms that power publishers. And in exchange for the publisher getting our software platforms at no cost and the consumer being able to use those tools at no cost, we simply ask them to opt in. In return, we guarantee the consumer we will never sell their data to anybody at any price at any time. We simply use that data to build intent-based scores on what does a consumer intend to do next. Do they intend to buy a particular credit card? Do they want a blue car of a particular model? Are they going to churn off a wireless platform? And we use that data to build a curriculum of contact on behalf of our enterprise clients to help them lower churn or create customers more efficiently. So by always keeping the consumer's data private, we get a lot more consumers who are willing to opt into the platform and work with us because they know their data is never going to be sold. Well, see, here's hoping we get stalked a little bit less by ads for things we've only just purchased. So thank you very much indeed. Zeta, Global CEO and co-founder and chairman, David Steinberg, really making the time for us when he's just released his earnings and indeed a serial entrepreneur there. So great findings. Now, we've got to talk about it. Call of Duty being delayed. It's the first time the franchise will be without an annual mainline release in nearly two decades. It's all according to people familiar with the plan. Now, we want to talk to our expert in all of this, Bloomberg's Jason Schreier, for more on the reasoning behind it. It feels as though, what, the previous release just didn't live up to expectations? 
Yeah, that's exactly what happened. So Call of Duty, um, it has been an annual release. It's come out every fall since 2005. So this is pretty stunning. It's a, it's a big change. I mean, just for a little context, is the last time we did not have a Call of Duty, um, I believe, was the beginning of the first Obama administration. So, oh, no, sorry. It was the beginning of, of George W. Bush's second term. So, yeah, so we're talking about a very long time. And, yes, yeah, so the previous year's, last year's Call of Duty game underperformed, which led Activision execs to start thinking, hey, maybe we need to rethink this whole release schedule thing, maybe give some of these titles a little bit more breathing room. Okay, so maybe a little bit more desire working up our appetite for the latest release, but it also comes at a time that there's a lot of change at Activision, of course, notably that they're being bored. Could it be anything to do with that? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's some there's been some conversations or another about how Microsoft will react. But you know what? I think legally, even though they've announced the acquisition that Microsoft is buying Activision, um, it is not quite closed. It needs to go through regulatory approval, which is expected to be finished by by next summer at the at the latest, summer of 2023 at the latest. So until then, Activision is is legally required to just continue operating autonomously. And while I'm sure they're in conversations with Microsoft execs all the time. They are still making their own calls, and I think this was more about the health of the Call of Duty franchise than it was about Microsoft coming in and wanting to make some changes. Talk to us, therefore, about maybe some of the independent changes they're making ahead of the sale from an executive shake-up perspective, because they were once the acquirer, particularly of Mm -hmm. the maker of Candy Crush. Then there's some executive churn there. Yes, again, um, that was actually just today, is that King, the makers of Candy Crush, they announced that their president and chief creative officer are both departing. Um, again, who knows if that is really related to the Microsoft acquisition mm-hmm. or if, as they said, they want to go spend more time with their families. <laughs> I mean, we all know what, what that typically means in exec speak. Um, but again, I, I just don't think that, um, while it's possible these folks saw the writing on the wall and are like, you know what, that Microsoft's going to make some changes anyway, we better, might as well get out of here early. I do not think that Microsoft is actually getting involved too much just yet. Okay. Lastly, like, talk to us a little bit about where is hot right now. So if we're going to have to wait for Activision to release Call of Duty, there is another game that everyone seems to be talking about, Elden Ring. (laughs) Yeah, Elden Ring comes out on Friday. Um, Today the review embargo lifts, so a bunch of... Criticism just hit. Last I checked, it was tracking to be um, one of the, if not the best-reviewed games of all time. Wow. Um, so wow. this is a game that's what, what held a lot that of before? What, what was the winner before? Um, I should check. I, I think uh, uh, The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild mm. was, a, was a top one. Mario Odyssey was another top one. Um, last I checked on the on Open Critic, which is a review aggregation site, it has a 96 out of 100, which is uh, by far the biggest game of the year and I think one of the biggest games ever. But, uh, yeah, so this game, um, it's getting a lot of hype, largely because it's a crossover between George R. R. Martin, um, George R. R. Martin, who's the writer of the Game of Thrones series, mm. um, and from Software, which is a Japanese developer that has become absolutely beloved among a lot of gamers for its series Dark Souls, um, which is known as like a really interesting, mysterious, difficult um, action action RPG series. And so this game combines the two, and it really just takes a lot of smart ideas from a lot of other games, and uh, it's really brilliant. I've been playing a whole lot of it over the past week. <laughs> Jason, you're doing your reporting for us. We thank you. Jason Schreier, he's always so smart on all things gaming, so go check 
check out the latest. Meanwhile, coming up, despite well, supply chain issues and shipping delays, it didn't seem to slow down overstock, which just reported better than expected fourth quarter earnings. We're going to be breaking down all of the numbers when it comes to your purchasing of big ticket items with the CEO, Jonathan Johnson. But also remember, their foray into blockchain, he's been a big proponent of the technology and looks as though his early investments there seem to still be bearing fruit, certainly people liking the stock on a key investment in the financial exchange area. So stick with us for that conversation. From beautiful, sunny New York, this is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop. Customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. is Bloomberg Technology. I'm Caroline Hyde in New York. Let's get back to some market moves today because we've seen tech in particular under pressure, particularly amid the rising tensions between Russia and Ukraine. Why? Let's talk to Ryan Vlastelica, who's with us, of course, over in Chicago. And Ryan, is it, is it theoretically risk off or is it more a rising rates environment that means that tech feels the pressure the most? Well, we're really seeing both of those factors uh, come into play at the same time right now. We are have we've long had concerns about the prospect of rising interest rates and inflation, uh, Fed policy, and then on top of that, we have this new geopolitical tension that is just another reason for investors to be a little bit more cautious about the growth side of the market. It's another reason why we've seen people just pull back from tech in a pretty broad-based fashion. Yeah, I'm looking at a chart. Nasdaq 100 off by 17% from its all-time high. I mean, that's basically heading into bear territory now, as we saw the. S&P 500 hit a technical correction level, Ryan. Talk to us about what analysts are saying, because on the one side, you've got Goldman Sachs sort of talk calling about a regime change that we're seeing, particularly in the hedge funds area, selling out of big tech. But Morgan Stanley is sort of looking at maybe the silver lining, the opportunities therein. Absolutely. So Morgan Stanley came out with some data yesterday that looks at uh, fund ownership for major technology stocks. And it found that when it comes to names like Apple and Microsoft, these are under-owned relative to their weight in uh, the S&P 500, which the firm interprets as a, a positive signal. Perhaps people have come out of these for so much, there's maybe a little bit of room uh, on the upside from here. Therefore, are you likely to see a bounce? Are we likely to head to a bear territory? Are we thinking that in this rising tension with Russia and Ukraine, we're really in for more pain to come? 
everyone I've spoken with uh, expects a lot more volatility in the space, and certainly no one is ruling out the potential for additional downside from here. But when it comes to these uh, major names like your Apples and Microsofts and Amazon and so forth, people continue just to really see very strong long-term growth potential here, strong earnings power, and those are factors that do have people continuing to be a fan of them, even if in the short term there is a uh, you know, potential for further volatility and downside. And questioning evaluations, Ryan, we thank you so much, Bloomberg's Ryan Blastelica. Stay warm over in cold Chicago. And let's talk about sort of the down day that we had on the overall markets. But the companies that outperformed, one of them was Overstock, in fact, surging in terms of its share price, announcing better than expected fourth quarter earnings, as well as navigating, of course, the ongoing headwinds that are supply chain issues, labor issues, inflationary issues. Let's talk about how you managed to navigate that. And also a little bit of blockchain too. CEO of Overstock's with us, Jonathan Johnson. Jonathan, congrats on the numbers. And, and talk to us a little bit about how you've managed to ensure that inventory is where you need it, that supply is where you need it when the rest of the world is really struggling with it. Yeah, we had another great quarter. It's our seventh consecutive quarter of profits, second consecutive year of market share growth. Uh, We have a vast and distributed supply chain. Uh, So over 3,000 partners that have goods for us. We have always had goods in inventory. Uh, We're very good at forecasting uh, for our for our carriers, what demand will be. So we weren't hit with Shipageddon two years ago, and we weren't hit with any delivery problems this past year. And it, of course, supply chain is tough, but we think our distributed asset light model really helps us navigate it well. And do you see any easing of some of those pressures in general in the industry? Uh, I think the bottlenecks and kinks in the supply chain probably last for the bulk of 2022. Uh, that that supply chain is pretty stressed, and so any small kink in it tends to be amplified more than it normally would. Uh, we think our system works well, particularly well in times of high demand and low supply. What about inflationary pressures as well? Because people come to you for value. Is that going to be a, a headwind, tailwind for you as we start to see people worrying about the price point? People do come to us and recognize us for smart value, which means, you know, the best product they can get for their dollar. Uh, Of course, there are inflationary headwinds for everyone, whether it's labor or goods or, you know, gasoline prices. Mm. We've done a nice job being able to absorb those with our suppliers and pass as little of those as possible onto onto our customers. Our customers, when they come to Overstock, she expects a great deal her dollar and we're still able to deliver that. I'm interested when you say gasoline because an awful lot of people would say actually it's it's the delivery, it's the trucking, it's that sort of ch- choke point that has been difficult. How are you finding, you know, when we look at geopolitical tension, when we look at oil prices heading towards $100, is that something you just brace for that little bit more? How do you lean on your suppliers in that respect? Well, you know, we, we have to uh, lean on them. We work closely with... Uh, you know, the UPSs and the FedExs of the world, which are the last mile delivery from our suppliers' warehouses, uh, it's it's a difficult thing to manage. We've got a great supply chain team that manages each of those relationships 
really well. Just looking at your share price, obviously doing incredibly well on the day, but has been pre under pressure over the year. How are you sort of talking to investors at the moment? Are they feeling that you're getting caught up in a, in a valuation question mark in, in the time where we start to look at rate hikes and, and issues like that? Or what, what do you make of the valuation of your business? Well, I, as I mentioned on our uh, call today, we have a board-authorized uh, share repurchase uh, amount. We think our stock is undervalued today. Uh, we've been in, a, in a, a company blackout period since the 1st of December. That's been the bulk of when, the time when the price has gone down. Uh, I think we're in a good position to exercise our buyback should that be the right thing to do? Interesting. So making the most of it yourselves. Of course, you're a man who's known for being front of the pack when it comes to dream homes, but also a man who's really understood and got to grips with blockchain before many did and before it became the catch-all term that we all love to make out that we're further afield in crypto than we actually are. I'm interested in Medici Ventures, of course. That was originally the, the part of the business that you had making investments in, in some of the blockchain technology. You've doubled down on that. T0, talk to us about why this is a spin-off of yours. This is, well, a company that you own a minority stake in and Piper Sandler analysts really liking the new funding round that T-Zero has been getting. Remind us what T-Zero does and why it's additive to your business. So T-Zero is blockchain meets capital markets. It's a, it's a registered alternative trading system or an exchange uh, that uses blockchain to settle trades more quickly. It's able to deal in cryptocurrencies and NFTs and security tokens and in normally traded NMS securities. Uh, this week, T-Zero announced that it received a significant minority investment from ICE, the parent company to uh, the New York Stock Exchange, among others, and that the former chief strategy officer uh, at ICE would become the new CEO at T-Zero. We think this is a great omen for the future. Uh, as markets move to the 21st century, we think they're going to use blockchain. We think you're going to be able to trade, you know, crypto and, and stock and NFTs all in one place. T-Zero is set up for that, to have ICE on the cap table. And David Goon is the, is the CEO. I just think bodes really, really well. Well, how long will you, will Overstock remain a key investor? What, what is your few forward-looking plan in this respect? So we have interests, investments in 21 different blockchain companies. Mm. About a year ago, we formed a limited partnership in Pelion Ventures, which is a, a venture capital firm, is the general partner of, of that fund, and it manages or oversees those uh, 21 companies, including T-Zero. Pelion was instrumental in closing this deal with David Goon and ICE. Mm. And so uh, we're letting Pelion manage the exits and how those things work within that fund. But uh, I see a long, strong future for T-Zero. Really fascinating being able to talk about the consumer and indeed the blockchain world with you all at the same time. Overstock CEO Jonathan Johnson, stay well in Salt Lake City. Meanwhile, coming up, crypto and Washington. Is the relationship between the industry and the Hill all that transparent? We're we talking about, well, the swapping of talent from one to the other. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? 
What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. And this is, of course, time now for our crypto report. And we want to dive into the relationship between crypto and Capitol Hill because, well, it seems as though it's getting more entangled. People increasingly moving between jobs in crypto and the government agencies that actually police that very industry. Well, there's therefore the potential for conflicts of interest. They seem to be growing. And could it potentially undermine efforts to really regulate the sector? There's been a deep dive done by my colleague in Bloomberg, Alison Versprill, and you join me now, Alison, to really talk about the data being crunched by the Tech Transparency Project. What do they make of the amount, the sheer scale of the revolving door between Capitol Hill and crypto? So they characterize this as as really an explosion in an activity in recent years. Um, you know, I talked to them a little bit about when they started analyzing this data, and they said. You know, it was slow to start, and now we're seeing more and more of it. And I can tell you from personal experience, having covered this now for a couple of months, that on a near regular basis, I'm getting announcements about personnel shifts, you know, individuals moving from jobs at the White House, regulators uh, into companies like Binance, Coinbase, um, or, or groups that lobby or represent them at law firms. Do you, is there a date? Is there a time? Is there a tipping point that started this move, do you think? So, you know, I talked to the director of, of the Tech Transparency Project, and she said they started looking at data as far back as 2012, hmm. um, but that there wasn't really a, you know, growth in this until 2014, and that we've just started to see that increase uh, since then. And I can also say that the infrastructure bill that was passed last year contained some provisions the crypto industry didn't didn't like all that much. Yes. Uh, and that definitely spurred some some activities, some moves, uh, you know, also on the lobbying side. So seeing a lot of that. Going back to that time when it was that particular bill that took, I mean, an awful lot of people by surprise that they suddenly were really doubling down on the crypto space. And we did a lot of, I remember number crunching then about the sheer lack of lobbying and the money that is spent by other industry groups vis-a-vis crypto. And it was just paled into in comparison. They had hardly anyone up on Capitol Hill fighting for them. Is that now really changing? And what are the concerns being highlighted by this particular bit of reporting? So that's definitely changing. We're seeing, um, you know, we're seeing uh, super PACs that are designated just to crypto. We're seeing, um, you know, companies like Coinbase and and others beefing up their lobbying, hiring more outside firms. Um, So in general, we're just seeing a lot more money flooding into Washington. And that was really one of the concerns that was raised in this report. They said, you know, having this greater flow of 
former regulators into the industry or vice versa, you know, could that potentially impact the regulatory process um, and prevent the rules from being as tight as they should be? And for full disclosure, my husband is a senior manager over at Coinbase, so I want to highlight that fact. But I'm, I'm interested in whether this is unique or not. I mean, is this kind of what happens? Crypto is so unique because of the sheer scale of money that was being made, and I can imagine that an awful lot of, you know, money wants to be put to work to ensure that the industry they all believe in survives. But what about a revolving door between Capitol Hill and other industry groups, other lobbying areas? Um, this, I will say, this is one area where crypto is definitely not unique. We mm. see that in all different types of sectors. We see it in banking. We see it in tax. Um, I think pretty timely, actually, we saw a pair of lawmakers, including Senator Liz Warren, asking for an investigation into sort of the flow of officials from large accounting firms into the IRS and Treasury and back and how that impacts tax rules. Um, so definitely a common trend all across different sectors. I think the one difference is that this is now a growing trend in crypto, which is such a new industry. Mm. And it really reflects that it's gaining more maturity and it's you know getting more influence in Washington. Alison Vesperl, thank you so much for bringing us the insights on that revolving door. We thank you. What it will take is not just simply putting uh, simple bandages and putting in programs, so to speak. It's about fundamentally um, redesigning the culture that exists within tech. The old way of doing things is no longer the, the way of the future. The data shows that individuals from historically excluded communities are having a different experience. But it all first starts with the data, and, and that will help us think about strategies and solutions. We have to address some of the root problems. At the moment, all we do is play like diversity musical chairs and at the end of the day we have to expand the actual pool of that talent itself by addressing educational inequities and other systemic barriers. Some of the DEI experts from Uber to Spotify to Snapchat talking about really tackling discrimination in the tech industry and well that's one of the key goals of my next guest too. Twilio is out with its own annual impact and DEI report just today, talking about how business leaders and corporations need to think about doing good overall. CEO Jeff Lawson, I'm pleased to say, is joining us now. And, I mean, so focused are you on this that you're taking time out of your well-deserved break. So we appreciate that, Jeff. And I'm interested about really the findings. What, what business responsibility means to you at Twilio now? Yeah, thank you, Carolyn. I mean, it's um, really interesting. When I think about the contract, the social contract between our society and companies, the idea is that companies make our society better. And that's why we allow things like a piece of paper filed in the state of Delaware or in Dublin can own property and enter into contracts and all sorts of interesting things. And historically, we've said, well, it makes society better because it you know, increases production and increases um, jobs and things like that. And companies make profits. But I actually think now society is asking more from that contract. We at Twilio have this belief that our existence should make communities around us and society overall stronger because we exist. And that's a multifaceted aspect of this contract that I think goes well beyond what you know the, the last generation of business leaders thought, that it was really just about making a profit. It's also a lot about the data, how you ensure that you are t- gaining true diversity, how indeed you are seeing that pay equality is coming about. How are you tracking the impact that you make from an environmental perspective, a social perspective, a governance perspective? 
Well, obviously, we try to track our impact along all those uh, aspects. But, you know, we do it not to have, like, the number to show. Mm. Now, we are transparent about the impact that we're having. Uh, but we actually use, like, when you think about DEI, a lot of companies think about, oh, this data. We have to put it out there to, 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 to prove something to the world. Um, what we think about it is the data is necessary, but you use the data to move, not prove. You, you use the data to impact your activities and to drive how you're building the company to make a company that is ever more inclusive and ever more diverse. And that's how we think about using data. Okay, so can you give us an example? I mean, I know that you've been in particular helping certain non-for-profits, organizations sort of align themselves with you and with other businesses. Is that, can you give us like exact data of how you're doing it? I'll give you another example, right? In business, what do we do? We set goals and we put our mind to achieving them. So when the vaccine for COVID came out last year, we set a goal to help vaccinate a billion people worldwide. Mm-hmm. And, we, and we put to work our product, our technology. We put to work our people and their volunteer time and uh, the resources they're funding from the company. And as a result of that, already just a year in, uh, we have already helped to vaccinate 350 million people. And that is a huge number, but we've just started to run a third of the way to our goal of a billion. But we do that by partnering with organizations who are on the ground, like Gavi, who is out there trying to vaccinate people in poorer countries that don't have readily access to the vaccine. And so we donated $10 million to Gavi. We were the second largest uh, corporation to donate to that cause. Um, And so I'm very proud of what Twilio has done. And this is just another example of how we set goals and we use data to move to get outcomes that we want as opposed to just to to try and prove something. Do you hope that it sort of disrupts from within? Are you leading by example in some way? And and how are you seeing other companies embrace what you offer, use your own tools to do the same sort of thing? You know, the opposite of trying to have a monopoly on doing good, we actually want to open source any idea that we have and help other people to do good as well. You know, one of the last pages of our impact report that we released today actually shows our lessons learned in this past year. And it talks about some of the things that, you know, mistakes we've made and what we've now learned from it in in hopes that other people can do that. Another example is we started a program called We Pledge 1%. It's a program for our employees to pledge 1% of their time, their income, or their Twilio equity to do good in the world for nonprofits. And we help them execute that by giving them ideas, help them donate their equity if that's what they want to do. And we've open sourced this and invited any other company who wants to bring this program to their employees as well. And so far, we've got dozens of companies, including Atlassian and Zoom and many others, who have actually brought this program to their employees as well. And now we've got tens of thousands of employees at a variety of different companies all participating by giving 1% of their resources to do good. Interestingly, do you think that it sets you apart from a talent perspective. Are you getting that feedback that people are coming to Twilio because of this? Or is this sort of an added benefit, quote unquote, if you know what I mean? Well, we have made impact a really integral part of our business. At some companies, you know, doing good is a cost center. Oh, we got to donate to this so we don't look bad in the press, right? At Twilio, that's not how we think about it at all. We think of it as a virtuous cycle. The more good we do in the world, the more that is going to engage our employees and build great awareness and like high esteem for our company that will attract more customers, that will attract more uh, employees, that will then help us build a stronger company that then can allow us to do more in the world. And that is a nice virtuous cycle. And that's why Twilio.org at, at our company is not a cost center. It's actually a business unit. Hmm. And it actually does business to get our product into the hands of nonprofits who could be using our product to do good at great discount. And then we partner with those organizations, make them successful, and that allows us to then do more good in the world. And I think that's a new model that I'm very proud of having uh, really innovated on. 
And just briefly, we've got about a minute left. When you are looking at a billion people vaccinated, is this very much on the emerging markets focus? Because I'm thinking of Eric Adams here in the union, in New York, potentially not needing people to be vaccinated to go out to restaurants and the like. Well, you know, think about it. Uh, a lot of this is in emerging uh, countries uh, where there isn't as easy access to vaccines. And we're very happy to be partnering with a number of organizations who are doing amazing work, like Save the Children's, another great organization who's mm-hmm. helping to educate the world on the safety of these vaccines. But even here in the United States and, and other wealthier countries, you still see vaccine hesitancy. We still had a huge effort to mobilize and get even the U.S. population vaccinated. And we're still not done, obviously. And yeah. so I see this as, a, as an effort that truly spans the world. Jeff Lawson, so great to speak with you. Thank you. Go back to your break now. Really appreciate the time, Twilio CEO. Meanwhile, what does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology? Join us tomorrow. We're going to be joining John Wu, the president of Ava Labs, to talk about, well, earnings of crypto. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg. 